0: Well, it's really good to be with all of you here in this new year. May 2017 be a year of grace for each of you. Let us pray. Dear God, on this uh, glorious morning, we give you thanks for the written word which we've just heard read, a word which brings our souls to your life your love, and your light. And above all, we give you thanks for your living word, Jesus Christ. Your word made flesh. And it's through him and because of him that we pray. Amen. It is night, and King Herod is brooding and pacing in his dark palace, nervously tugging at his beard. Yesterday, he received word of a strange caravan of foreigners from the east arriving in Jerusalem, and ever since then, he's been waiting for them to come request an audience. The Jews in Jerusalem have now suffered under four brutal empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And now Herod the Great is the puppet king of the fifth brutal empire, the Roman one. Most Jews despise Herod, and everybody knows to fear him. Fear him because of his brutal habit of killing anyone. Rivals, a whole village, even his own sons, even his own wives. Anybody who gets in the way of Herod having his way. Herod likes singing Sinatra's song, My Way. The king's informers soon bring word That these gentle traveler, or these Gentile travelers are magi, stargazers, scholars of the heavens. And for many moons now, they've been tracking and following a star, eventually arriving here in Jerusalem. Are these magi perhaps from faraway Babylon? Home of a large Jewish community that stayed there after their exile in the sixth century. Do these magi magi perhaps even know about Isaiah 60? Is this why they've come to Jerusalem in particular seeking a newborn king? How do they know about this? This news of a newborn king of the Jews, sets Herod's heart racing. Who is this new rival to his throne? There's only one king of the Jews, and his name is Herod. Herod now quickly sends for the temple's priests and scribes. Where, he asks, is the Messiah to be born? In Jerusalem, right? After all, Isaiah's vision of God making Israel great again, it centers entirely on Jerusalem. But no. No, the scribes tell him, showing him the scroll from the prophet Micah. The Messiah won't be born in Jerusalem but in Bethlehem, nine miles away. Herod then urgently summons the magi. And when they enter, everything about them is strange and peculiar. The cut of their robes. The color of their skin. The fragrance of strange spices wafting from their robes. The angle of their eyes. And most strange of all, is this story of following a star here to Jerusalem. You see, the Magi's careful study of the heavens has brought them here to Jerusalem, but they're still nine miles away from their newborn king. How are they going to get there? Well, of all ways through sinister Herod. Because he's the one who tells them and sends them to Bethlehem with his crocodile words, go find that child so that I may worship him myself. And later, nine miles later, It's the loud blast of camels snorting cold air through their nostrils that first lets Mary and Joseph know that some very unexpected guests have just arrived. And then in come these strange foreigners, delirious with joy. Did you notice that? Their joy? Falling on their knees to worship this child pressing their foreheads on the dirty floor. They open up their treasure chests and offer their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to the child. And friends, here we are, 2,000 years later on this epiphany, Sunday, joining them in celebrating the coming of God's light to our world. Cradled in Mary's arms today, in lowly Bethlehem, nine miles away from Jerusalem, is our world Savior, sent by God to scatter the proud and bring down the high and mighty, to lift up the lowly, and bring and fill the hungry with good things. And in this kingdom of his, justice and healed relationships will abound. In this child, God's light is now dawning, a light so radiant that no darkness will ever be able to overcome or snuff it out. This Jesus, as we learned as children, is the light of the world. And whoever follows him will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Friends, I think what makes the Bible so wonderfully life-giving is that we can delight in its stories as children and then contemplate them at ever deeper levels as we grow older. We want East Chestnut to be a faith community where we are all being equipped to do this, to make these deeper shifts in Scripture. For example, at first, a story like Jonah just seems like a whale of a story, right? With an epic vomiting scene. Good stuff, isn't it? But you don't want to stop there. My goodness. Sometime when we're adults, we begin to realize, no, this story is also about all the ways that we run away from God, right? And then we realize this is a story about how God's love, the circle of God's care, extends to all people, even our hated enemies in Iraq. I I mean, Nineveh. At first, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is just a great story about three guys in asbestos suits, unscathed in a fiery furnace. But then we realize it's about faithful people resisting the empire. Resisting, resisting, resisting. Refusing to bow down to the idols of Babylon. And I still meet people who are stuck in the first place. I meet adults who say, you don't believe in fairy tales like Jonah they haven't made the deeper shift in Scripture. And especially those of you in MYF and college students, I hope you are making this deeper shift in Scripture. Because if you don't, your faith may not survive. In the same way, who of us, wasn't completely captivated as kids by the story of these three wise guys on a perilous journey with saddlebags filled with treasure. Awesome! Wow! And though we never want to lose our childlike wonder about these stories, keep that, we also want East Chestnut to be a community where we're beginning to see deeper things in all of these stories. Deeper things. When I was in seminary, one of the deepest shifts that I made in my own life was when I read a little book by Walter Brueggemann called The Prophetic Imagination. It rocked my world and my faith in a good way he helped me to see for the very first time that our Bible actually contains two competing and radically different visions for how we should live our lives. Barry and John Stoner developed these same ideas in their more recent book, If Not Empire What? The first vision for how we live and organize our lives that we find in the Bible is what we might call the imperial or royal vision. It's one that we see most clearly in King Solomon. This vision is often violent and oppressive, hoarding wealth and crushes the poor. Yes, we do hear a lot of talk about Yahweh, but it's almost inconceivable that this God will ever say anything critical of the ruler. Are you with me? So it's religion in service of the king. In fact, the temple often serves as a means of control. Allowing those in power to regulate and to control access to God. This vision is focused on affluence, consuming, and power. It needs great big walls to to protect itself, and especially to protect its extravagant wealth that it hoards from others. Because this vision is built on the backs of a seething, poor majority, the 98%, this vision is inherently unstable and destined for self-destruction. Now, the good news is that there is a second vision coursing through the pages Of the Bible, and it is called the prophetic vision, seen in Moses, seen in Micah, and then seen most exquisitely and perfectly in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, God works to save the world by forming an alternative community to embody and live out and show the world God's forgiveness and justice and reconciliation. Dividing walls, they're not needed. They come tumbling down. And because God cares about everyone, all people, especially, by the way, refugees and widows and orphans, this vision is inherently stable and sustainable. It is good news for each of us individually. It's good news for our city, and it's great news for the whole planet, and saves us from the empire's violent and hell bent ways. Now, when our eyes are finally opened to the reality of these competing, two competing stories in Scripture, reading the Bible suddenly gets really exciting. For example, when we read in Micah 4:3 that we should turn our swords into plowshares, are you with me? into plowshares, and then later we read in Joel 3.10 that we should do exactly the opposite, we don't have to have another faith crisis. We don't have to turn into a theological pretzel explaining this. We can simply ask now, which passage most reflects God's deepest purposes for us as revealed in Jesus Christ. Or, in light of our story today, we could say, which story just takes us to Jerusalem again, and which one gets us to Jesus, nine miles away in Bethlehem. Many of us grew up hearing that the Bible is is the word of God. But friends, I believe this creates huge problems for us. Since there are parts of the Bible that are completely shocking And violent, and quite frankly, appalling. The more we actually read the Bible, the more exhausting it becomes to keep on claiming that everything in it reflects the will and character of God. That gets exhausting. And because of this, some of you here at East Chestnut have told me and it grieves me that your Bible sits on your shelf at home, dusty and unread. I won't ask you to raise your hands. By now I hope it's become clear that I find it much more helpful to say that the Bible contains the Word of God. Contains the Word of God, which we need to seek with all our heart, soul, and mind. And hear me clearly. It's a word that we all urgently need in our lives. A word that saves us again and again, saves me from catastrophe, heals our wounds, and guides our feet in God's ways of shalom. As your pastor, Samantha and I, our prayer is that East Chestnut may continue to become a community where we are all being equipped to study, and to wrestle with, and to treasure the Bible, so that we can keep on receiving God's urgently needed word for our lives. A church where the Bible doesn't sit dusty on our shelves at home, but actually serves as our trusted and daily guidebook. We treasure the Bible because this is the sacred book which brings us to Jesus. We wouldn't know about him without it. It's also the sacred book which keeps on telling us where we can find him and meet him and serve him in our world. And where is that? Well, invariably nine miles away from the centers of power. In the Bethlehems of our world, among those who are thirsty and sick, hungry, unclothed, or in prison. That's where. Where does that mean here in Lancaster? Well, it means among a certain refugee family from Syria of six. In sharing food and fellowship tomorrow night with our neighbors at the winter shelter this month, Jesus promises he's going to be there. At the end of our story today, the Magi suddenly come to a crucial, crucial turning point moment. Having just worshiped their new king, will they now go home and live their lives in the same old way? Will we? That night, God speaks to them in a dream. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Go home by a very different way. And then what do they do? They get up the next morning and they choose. We always need to choose. God sets us free to choose. They choose to follow this dream, and the Magi now go home by another road. Another road. Another road. You see, already with the Magi, we learn that living under Christ's reign requires a profound reordering of our lives, of our relationships, of our vision, and of our dreams. It requires following a different star and traveling home by a very different road. Amen.